Welcome back to Lightshed Research, a podcast that puts our research notes in your ears for your convenience. September 9th, 2021. 13 things we're thinking about coming out of summer 2021. As summer 2021 fades, we thought it would be useful to highlight some of the key issues we're thinking about. Is Disney sticking with ESPN as it seeks to license the brand to a sports book? Has sports betting competition gone too far relative to the financial opportunity? Why Netflix has structural advantages as it enters the video game space? Does the upcoming retrans affiliation negotiation between Comcast and Disney hold the keys to resolving Hulu ownership once and for all? Facebook less likely to succeed in the metaverse than Roblox and Snapchat? Can Amazon leverage Fire TV to gain a larger share of the connected TV advertising pie? Spotify's advertising ambitions are underappreciated. Twitter topics should boost MDAU growth and ad targeting. Why legacy media is finally serious about creating alternatives to Nielsen. Is Dish Sinclair retrans likely to result in RSNs finally being tiered? The importance of strategically aligning with the NFL's media assets. How COVID-19 continues to impact live events. The ripple effects if Hollywood loses access to China. Number one, has Disney given up on spinning off ESPN? When Bob Chapek took over as CEO of Disney in early 2020, we stated our view that Disney should spin off ESPN ABC to create a more focused company, with all of its remaining assets driving a streaming, flywheel, virtuous circle, leveraging wholly owned IP, TV and film production, SVOD, theme parks, consumer products. We continue to believe now is the time to spin off ESPN ABC before its financial challenges become more visible. There is simply no easy fix for ESPN's challenges and the broadcast cable TV business more broadly. In fact, less than two weeks ago, ESPN biographer Jim Miller talked about a growing desire in Burbank, where Disney's HQ is, to spin off ESPN on the Ringer podcast hosted by Bill Simmons, a former ESPN employee himself. Embedded above right, listen at the one hour, 38 minute mark. Spinning off ESPN would enable Disney to enter the sports betting business directly by combining with a sports book, similar to what we believe should happen with FanDuel Fox Sports and how Barstool, The Score, Penn are being integrated. A merger with a sports book would help change the narrative of ESPN and the broadcast cable network business more broadly from sub losses, viewership declines, and advertising headwinds to new market launches and expanding the TAM of sports bettors. In addition, ending Disney's ownership of ESPN would enable on-air programming outside of live games to transform into sports betting analysis. We firmly believe the valuation of both entities would create meaningful value for current Disney shareholders. Despite the strategic logic and the drumbeat to spin off ESPN ABC, news that Disney is looking to license the ESPN brand to a sportsbook for $3 billion likely implies a spinoff is not happening. We presume a $3 billion licensing deal would be at least a 10-year agreement, helping ESPN to partially offset the pressure from declining subscribers and falling viewership, while rights fees continue to escalate. We believe neither ESPN's current sports betting partners, Caesars and DraftKings, nor other top sports books see ESPN's value anywhere near what ESPN believes it is worth. Let's face it, ESPN is no longer a cool brand the way it was 15 to 20 years ago. 
In turn, if ESPN chooses to move forward with licensing their brand to a sportsbook, it is likely to occur with a second, third-tier sportsbook. The name currently being thrown around is Rush Street Interactive, or RSI. However, licensing the ESPN brand would appear to make it very hard for a top-tier sportsbook to later merge with ESPN ABC, which is why we feel like an ESPN spin is less and less likely. Key issues to consider. Would Disney need to buy out Hearst's 20% of ESPN to spin off ESPN ABC and merge with a sportsbook? As it's unclear whether Hearst would be quote-unquote okay partnering with a sportsbook, similar to the, you know, the sin issue, ESPN faces under Disney ownership. Not to mention, how does Disney value ESPN, given the intangible value derived from being under the same umbrella as ABC for ad sales and distribution, along with exposure to theme parks and Disney's triple play bundle? Networks carry ads for an ESPN-branded sportsbook. Or does the sportsbook isolate itself by partnering with ESPN? Why does ESPN, the so-called worldwide leader in sports, want to align itself with a second or third tier sports book. Feels strange to say the least. Number two, the sports betting arms race and an emerging dark horse. The online sports betting industry has grown far bigger, far more quickly than we imagined following the PASPA ruling four years ago. 32 states in Washington, D.C. now have some form of legalized online sports betting, and the industry will generate $3 billion of bets in 2021. In turn, there's a scramble among sportsbooks vying for market share, with 24 brands competing in New Jersey alone. Given the level of competition and the stock performance following GGR growth, books have been willing to spend on acquisition. And the price of poker has gotten higher in the past year. DraftKings alone has spent $795 million on marketing in the past 12 months, up from $219 million in the prior 12. BetMGM has gained significant share, but has spent to do it. Now Caesars is beginning to ramp marketing, as is Wynn, evidenced by their $100 million marketing campaign that includes Ben Affleck and Shaq. Then, once customers are acquired, they have to be retained. Books are trying to differentiate by attaching themselves to media businesses, with several M&A and affiliate deals announced this year. What we have is an old-fashioned arms race that is only certain to benefit the platforms and media companies selling advertising. This will likely end with an oligopoly and a lot of losers that will withdraw from the U.S. betting industry and consolidation of others. We've been trying to think about who is ultimately in that final group and how they will have to evolve their businesses in time. Ultimately, we believe the most capitalized with head starts now are going to be a part of it. DraftKings and FanDuel lead the pack with BetMGM. We are fans of the approach that Penn has taken in not spending and trying to leverage Barstool's content and brand. However, there are limitations to the size of their audience and that loyalty, especially in a market replete with offers. This is part of the reason Penn needed the score acquisition. Others like Fubo are just wasting resources even trying to compete. The dirty little secret is that even as players come out of the industry, there is still a limit to the sports betting market size, one that likely does not alone justify the valuations of the top players. Thus, sportsbooks are going to have to monetize their funnel in other ways. Gaming is a natural evolution, which is why DraftKings bought Golden Nugget last month. But state approvals for iGaming have been slow and likely will continue at that pace. We have started to wonder if some of the long-term winner sportsbooks are other businesses that can afford to not make money on sports betting alone. 
akin to how Amazon thinks about adding value to Prime with video to drive retail transactions. And who can use their existing businesses to market sports betting products, similar to Barstool and Penn's model? Fanatics has specifically caught our eye as they made a bid for a New York license after hiring away FanDuel president Matt King. Fanatics is clearly trying to expand its dominant sports apparel business in other ways, making a strong move into trading cards by taking the exclusive MLB deal away from tops. Perhaps Fanatics is trying to become the Amazon of sports, with things like sports betting simply helping to drive engagement and profits across other areas of their business. Number three, why Netflix and gaming make sense. Despite calling itself an entertainment subscription and constantly iterating as industry dynamics and technology have evolved, Netflix has been steadfast in sticking to its identity as an SVOD company. Everything Netflix has done along the way has been to further those ambitions, and Netflix's obsessive focus was its hallmark compared to many others that have dipped into the on-demand streaming business. The broadened definition finally resonates with the addition of video games to the Netflix membership. Netflix is now officially in the games business with two Stranger Things mobile games for Android users in Poland. See the screenshots embedded to the right. An uninspiring start to be sure, but this is a company whose original content program started with a Norwegian television show called Lilyhammer, a year before Netflix arrived with House of Cards. We're not saying Netflix's video game ambitions will have the impact of its original series or even of its burgeoning film offering. This is especially the case given the notorious difficulty of building successful game studios. Even if you're well capitalized, just look at Amazon or create the world's most iconic content and IP. Think Disney. We have also continuously expressed skepticism about the need for a games flicks, as there are several distinctions between how players consume video games versus video music, which makes a broad-based video game subscription a business model that doesn't necessarily add consumer value. Nonetheless, we believe Netflix's move into interactive media was necessary, and there's a strong possibility it will have a lasting impact on not only Netflix's business, but the future of games and interactive media. Netflix's move into games is instructive of the state of Netflix specifically and entertainment in general. We continuously speak to media as a battle for time and attention. See our recent post on optimizing for time spent. Hastings himself has crystallized this sentiment numerous times, saying Netflix competes with sleep and more relevant to this discussion, declared Fortnite to be Netflix's biggest competitor. Video games have taken share of entertainment time, especially as mobile games became a $90 billion industry from scratch in a decade. New game formats and technology are further broadening games' appeal. So did the pandemic, where the growth of games business eclipsed that of the rest of media, including streaming video. Engagement remains far above 2019 levels industry-wide. It's also worth considering this despite hundreds of millions of consumers around the world having a Netflix app installed on their phone. It is lightly used, with most Netflix time spent on larger screens. In the war for time, capturing more mobile time spent feels like a big opportunity for Netflix. Netflix clearly has not tried to branch into every area of media that is gaining attention. The company has stayed far away from UGC video, AVOD fast, messaging, and many other trends. But it's important to note our belief that the lines between video and video games will blur over time. We see an eventual continuum of interactivity with streaming video as we know it on one side and video games on the other, but with various degrees of interactivity between. 
To be clear, on-demand video is not the final frontier for video. It is why Lightshed Ventures invested in GenVid, and why it is imperative for Netflix to build interactive capabilities as it looks to sustain and build on its leadership in streaming video. Sticking to pure-play video games, though, we believe Netflix has advantages in its captive scale and business model that, when working in concert, give it a chance to make a mark in the game's business. Captive scale. Netflix ended last quarter with 209 million global members, at about three people per household, and sprinkling some password sharing, the service likely has a captive audience of around 700 million people. All games require a massive amount of marketing spend relative to their production costs, from AAA titles to the most basic mobile games. In fact, marketing efficiency is a big part of the equation in determining the viability of mobile games, the CAC and that LTV CAC calculation. As it does with video content, Netflix will utilize its home screen and recommendation engine to drive engagement as well as to re-engage users who have played the game before. A key problem with mobile games today is retention. Business model. We express skepticism of video game subscription services in general, mostly as we do not see robust consumer demand. But Netflix is not launching a video game subscription. Rather, it's simply adding in more to do within its existing subscription, much like Amazon adds more benefits to Prime two-day shipping, such as Prime Video. In turn, Netflix does not have to justify the existence of a standalone video game subscription service. Then, as they pointed out in Q2 earnings interview, there is the advantage of not having to monetize through microtransactions or advertising. Should allow creators to build games differently, much like bingeable TV series remove the need for cliffhangers to get you to come back week after week. This gives Netflix the freedom to invest in genres and game developers left behind as the industry evolved into a games-as-a-service model. Netflix has always played Moneyball in its content spend, investing in underserved areas, that its business model and scale could uniquely support. We saw it first in serialized drama, then small mid-budget films and documentaries, young adult, teen, rom-coms, etc. Netflix has the resources to make informed bets into these genres. Remember, 10% of its current cash content budget is still $2 billion, which would finance an awful lot of video games. What does the evolution of Netflix games business look like? It's tough to predict, because we don't even think Netflix fully knows yet. And they have the benefit of time and experimentation to figure it out. We do know that these first Stranger Things offerings are hardly instructive. First of all, Netflix games will be streamed. After all, Netflix is a streaming company. They will also be cross-platform despite the early focus on mobile, which is both less expensive and solves the near-term controller issue on the larger screen. We do foresee Netflix contracting out its games to external studios for some time on a cost plus model, similar to what it does with a lot of original video content. Cost plus could be a very compelling business model for creators, given how few mobile games succeed today. Reminds us of the Netflix TV series playbook. Building its own studio for games will take time, and M&A has never been the Netflix way. Our guess is Netflix's first larger bets will be single-player narrative games. This is a natural segue from VOD. It's also currently an underserved market. More social games should follow at some point. It is a chance for Netflix to add social elements, which it's never been able to do before. We are also fairly certain that if Netflix sticks with games, it will look to create new game experiences that are only possible leveraging cloud infrastructure. 
In success, Netflix will be able to build across the continuum of entertainment, from video to video games. In the meantime, though, as the company said, we're going to start relatively small, we'll learn, we'll grow, we refocus our investment based on what we see working. That is the Netflix way. Number four, is there finally a catalyst in sight to resolve Hulu ownership? Comcast and Disney went to war over Fox and Sky, which in hindsight is pathetic as both assets have meaningfully underperformed, even adjusting for the unexpected pandemic. That said, the Fox-Sky battle illustrated just how much Comcast and Disney despise each other, with bad blood dating back to Comcast's hostile takeover attempt in 2004. See the picture embedded to the right. While Disney acquired Fox and Comcast acquired Sky, the animosity between the companies has continued to escalate, with Hulu the latest battleground. Comcast is set to exit Hulu in 2024 at a minimum valuation of $27 billion, with its 30% stake worth at least $9 billion. With Comcast and Disney now in arbitration over Disney's launch of Star Plus overseas, that appears to be an international expansion of Hulu's simply under a different brand name, without Comcast consent. We wonder if the penultimate event could be the coming retrans affiliation renewal between the two industry behemoths. Comcast and Disney reached a 10-year retrans programming deal in late 2011, with the agreement announced publicly in early 2012. We suspect the two sides will want to figure out all of the following as part of their negotiation. The retrans cable network carriage with ESPN gaining the ability to take its core channels direct-to-consumer. While Disney's clearly not ready to take ESPN direct-to-consumer today, it needs flexibility to make the pivot, either adding the linear content into ESPN Plus and raising the price dramatically, $25 to $30 plus per month, which could infuriate US, UFC fanatics, or create yet another D2C streaming product. Resolve Hulu ownership immediately so that Disney can seamlessly integrate Hulu into Disney Plus, and enable Comcast to have more exclusive programming on Peacock versus being shared with Hulu. Not to mention a war chest of cash to invest in Peacock, assuming Disney buys out Comcast at a valuation well north of the $29 billion floor play price. Worth noting, this would also end the lucrative content licensing agreement, the so-called CLA, between NBCU and Disney that could be worth upwards of $1 billion annually to NBCU. Figure out what happens with sports betting partnerships as Comcast, NBCU, and ESPN ABC have different sportsbook relationships. Imagine ESPN licenses its brand to XYZ Sportsbook for hundreds of millions of dollars per year or merges with a sportsbook. But when you're watching Monday Night Football on ESPN, all of the Comcast UI overlay drives the viewer to a points bet betting experience. While a Comcast overlay is clearly legal under fair use, think VCR, DVR, etc., we suspect affiliation agreements will want to take into account how sports betting will be handled by each side going forward. Number five, is Facebook really a metaverse company? Metaverse has been perhaps the most overused and wrongly used word in TMT over the past two years. The theoretical always-on, synchronous, interconnected, virtual 3D space with its own economy is a place towards which technology will bring us closer. Building blocks are evident as games are evolving beyond competitive to experiences and play-to-earn models take shape. Internet narrative currencies have been born, and even with the rise of Zoom. And there are companies such as Roblox and Epic that have been actively working towards building their vision of the metaverse. However, it feels like every company is finding a way to attach themselves to the word to get investor attention, 
We were most amused when Sinclair used Metaverse repeatedly during their last earnings call in describing their coming and repeatedly delayed regional sports network streaming service. Quote, fans access games via an app that is on our platform, gives us a direct line to the viewer, and as a result, unlocks a whole set of opportunities to engage and monetize these consumers. Given the direct relationship with viewers, we're able to create a metaverse or marketplace where we can serve up a more personalized and optimized experience for the viewer. Sinclair CEO Chris Ripley, August 4th, 2021. Despite the intensifying use of metaverse, it was still surprising to hear Mark Zuckerberg declare Facebook to be a quote-unquote metaverse company. To be fair, Mark is attaching his label in a far more appropriate way than others. However, his vision is not really a departure from the longer-term strategy he has vocalized since Facebook bought Oculus in 2014, which is that virtual reality is the next major computing platform. In his Vergecast interview embedded above right, Zuckerberg gave little credence to any other building blocks for the metaverse or its existence on other platforms. He continuously brought the conversation back to the goal of presence and became defensive when interviewer Nile Patel asked if people really want to wear headsets all day. Will Facebook have a strong role as we move down the continuum to a metaverse? That is likely. We believe virtual reality will become one of the many ways to communicate, entertain, and spend time in the virtual space and find it use, finds its use cases. Of course, Facebook also has 3.5 billion monthly active users across its apps, deep technology investment and talent, and robust cash generation that is matched by only a few. That is going to give it a seat at the proverbial metaverse table. Zuckerberg has also shown the ability to pivot Facebook with technology. His move from desktop to mobile was amazing. However, generally shifts in media and communications bring new dominant companies and platforms that are native to the new technology. We still believe that Roblox and Epics will be the leaders as the metaverse takes shape. If you listen to the Roblox Tech Talks podcast embedded above right, you will understand the importance of building purpose-driven integrated technology to allow developers to create and manage 3D interactive experiences across all platforms. It feels like Facebook is nowhere in an interactive media or games and too focused on VR beyond licensing Rival Peak from Genvid and an acquisition aqua hire of Creta that was small enough to avoid regulatory scrutiny, probably more of an aqua hire. Facebook's tie to IRL identity could also be an encumbrance as building new identity through avatars is such an important component of the metaverse. Say that a company with Facebook's scale and resources could use M&A to accelerate its metaverse vision. However, given the increased regulatory scrutiny Facebook is under, we doubt a large-scale acquisitions are possible. Look no farther than the intense European regulatory scrutiny Facebook is facing from two relatively small acquisitions, Giphy and Customer. Unless VR is actually the future of computing, Facebook is going to need to build its metaverse contributions on its own. We're actually more bullish on Snapchat's role in a metaverse, as we detailed in our July 2021 price target increase. We believe Snap's potential in 3D interactive experiences is being overlooked. The Snap map could play a key role if Snap extends it to include virtual space, both related to and unrelated to IRL locations. Then add Snap's capabilities in AR and Bitmoji and its focus on games. It's hard not to think about Bitmojis interacting live in 3D virtual space, moving through media experiences from video to music to games and more, and of course shopping with its advantages in AR, 
the snap map, which should evolve to include purely virtual space and 3D Bitmoji. Number six, Amazon's TV ambitions grow larger by the day. When Roku and Fire TV have similar active account bases, Roku usage is by far and away the industry leader. The latest Conviva study in Q2 2021 has Roku at 38% of connected TV time spent, compared to Fire TV at 21% in the U.S. We believe Roku time spent benefits meaningfully from being the embedded TV OS, whereas the vast majority of Fire TV devices are via add-on dongles that require the user to switch HDMI inputs. We had always assumed that there was a reason Fire TV was not focused on embedded TV OS, maybe tied to Fire TV being an Android build with a Google agreement making it challenging, whether that reason has disappeared or never existed in the first place. Press reports indicate Amazon's planning to release a new line of TVs that will utilize Fire TV this fall, initially at least built by third parties such as TCL. Now think about Amazon TV set plans in the context of the following. Thursday Night Football for $1 billion per year and push to start the contract a year early, beginning with the 2022-2023 season, with Thursday Night Football the second most watched primetime series on ad-supported linear TV. Acquired MGM for $8.4 billion. While there's been a lot of focus on the Bond franchise and the potential to mine MGM for other franchise IP, the Deep Movie catalog appears well-suited to exploitation on Prime Video and IMDb TV. Greater focus on free ad-supported TV within the Fire TV UI, with a dedicated free tab and increasing array of fast channels. Expected rebrand of IMDb TV coming later this year. All signs point to Amazon wanting a bigger and bigger share of the TV ad pie, leveraging the TV OS data to deliver personalized and targeted video ads. To be fair, Google rebranded Android TV to Google TV last year, and despite having the best TV OS, there's been no meaningful impact on domestic connected TV market share. Honestly, it all comes down to marketing. Consumers know what a Roku TV is, whereas they do not know what or why they should buy a Google TV or an Amazon TV. While we have somewhat given up on Google marketing Google TV, we suspect Amazon is not spending this much money on content and licensing without robust marketing plans. Keep your connected TV eyes on Amazon. Maybe it will even convince Google to start marketing Google TV. It's worth noting, at the same time, Roku's moving into original content at an accelerating pace. Quibi, This Old House, Cypher, Saban, Output Deal, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, Christmas Special, initially to accelerate advertising revenues. But it also feels that longer term, it's a way for Roku to differentiate its tvOS platform from the threat of rising competition, meaning Google and Amazon. Number seven, Spotify's advertising ambitions escalating. Back in May 2020 on the Lightshed Live, Brandon Ross asked Spotify co-founder Daniel Ek what triggered his increased interest in advertising. Ek's response is likely to surprise you. You can listen to his full answer at the 15-minute mark embedded to the right. When he stated that when they first conceived Spotify, he was inspired by Google and expected advertising to be their dominant revenue source. It was the record labels that pushed hard for subscription, and the rest is history. Since Spotify went public in April 2018, advertising has largely been ignored by investors. Advertising, in Eck's own words, was effectively viewed as the conveyor belt, as part of a freemium business model to drive paid subscribers. You can listen to Eck's comments on advertising at the 1430 mark on the four-year record podcast embedded to the right.
Spotify advertising revenues grew 110% in Q2 2021, reaching $275 million. Even adjusting for the first-time inclusion of Megaphone's ad biz, we believe organic growth was up 90% plus. While Spotify's aggressive push into podcasting and other forms of audio, live audio via Greenroom, is clearly helping to accelerate ad growth, we believe the core ad-supported music product is benefiting from improved targeting and tools for brands and advertisers. Spotify is also testing new products such as Spotify Plus, the first time it's offered a hybrid product akin to the Hulu-based tier, meaning ad-supported with a subscription fee. Currently, there is either free ad-supported or ad-free subscription. You can see a screenshot of one of the multiple Spotify Plus price points being tested embedded to the right. And just yesterday, Spotify announced that a third personalized playlist is available for sponsorship, with Release Radar sponsored by Disney+. Plus. Discover Weekly and On Repeat already offer sponsorship opportunities. Roku hit $1 billion of platform revenue in Q4 2019 with investor excitement over connected TV ad revenue surging over the past couple of years. If Spotify's advertising revenues continues to grow at a multiple of subscription revenues, with new product offerings fueling ad-supported time spent, we expect investors to start to actually care and pay attention to Spotify's advertising business not to mention its valuation will likely benefit from being seen as a true dual revenue stream business. Eight, Twitter topics driving engagement. Back in early 2020, we wrote, we believe topics has the ability to dramatically expand Twitter's user base over the next several years. Having a great Twitter consumer experience that drives users to keep coming back requires Twitter to surface content you find valuable and engaging every time you open the app. In turn, the hardest issue for Twitter from its earliest days has been the onboarding process, meaning getting you to follow the right accounts. When you think about it, Twitter was sort of built wrong, as it's an interest-based app that requires users to follow specific people and accounts. Even as a power user ourselves, figuring out what accounts to follow is not always obvious. Topics is a gateway to a far better Twitter experience for new and existing users, especially as topics move from generic, such as financial services or video gaming, to more specific like Roblox and Ethereum cryptocurrency. Twitter's investing heavily in machine learning, annotating tweets behind the scenes that can not only make sure it categorizes tweets into the appropriate topics, but surfaces the right tweets to a user within a given topic. While you've probably seen Twitter recommend topics for you to follow within your timeline, it is now taking that a step further with suggested topics on the topics tab See the screenshot embedded above right. And when a topic surfaces a tweet in your timeline and you decide to follow that account, you now get a handful of other suggested related accounts to follow. Or you can follow all with one simple click, as shown in the screenshot embedded to the right. Improving a user's experience on Twitter through topics will help drive continued MDOU growth, with just-released new product offerings such as communities building on the topic's momentum. See the tweet embedded to the right. However, what really excites us is that as Twitter learns more and more about its users with increasingly specific topics and communities, that same machine learning can be harnessed to better target advertising. As topics get better, look for it to be a meaningful catalyst to performance and direct response ad spending on Twitter's platform. Number nine, real competition to Nielsen feels inevitable. Distrust and frustration with Nielsen has been growing for at least the past decade as they've struggled to properly measure the expanding ways consumers watch video content, 
not to mention the antiquated method for measuring linear TV itself. The irony is that more and more video viewing moves from linear TV, broadcasting cable, to streaming TV. The streaming platforms know exactly who is watching and for how long and on which platform, including what ads are actually consumed. Nobody audits Google search because it just works. While we understand the need for third-party auditing of digital viewership data, the value of a third-party measurement firm will never be the same in a streaming world as it has been in the linear world. Despite all the headlines about Nielsen losing its accreditation and concerns over its measurement errors during the pandemic, we doubt any major legacy media company is about to end their relationship with Nielsen. However, we do get the sense that NBCU's aggressive push for alternatives to Nielsen is being warmly embraced by other media companies, as well as top brands and advertisers. While in the past, pushing back on Nielsen simply ended up in a slightly lower rate increase, we firmly believe legacy media is serious about creating alternatives to Nielsen. We would expect multiple alternatives to develop over the coming year, meaningfully reducing Nielsen's leverage with legacy media as contracts expire in 2022 and beyond. Nielsen will not go away, but they are likely to actually make less from each of their network partners for the first time. Number 10. Will DISH succeed in tiering RSNs? DISH dropped HBO in November 2018, refusing to guarantee HBO a minimum number of subscribers when HBO was outselling the exact same product HBO Now at retail on an a la carte basis. HBO Now has transformed into HBO Max. Nearly three years later, DISH reached an agreement to offer HBO a la carte to its subscribers. We wonder if this could be a model for what happens to the Bally Sports RSNs owned by Sinclair Broadcasting. DISH dropped what were then called the Fox Sports RSNs in July 2019. They were in the process of being sold from Fox to Disney to Sinclair, refusing to pay exorbitant price increases. Shortly after the drop, DISH chairman and CEO Charlie Ergen stated, The vast, vast majority of our consumers do not watch a single second of regional sports content. Two years later, we suspect every disc subscriber who valued the Bally Sports RSNs has left for an alternative platform, with Dish Cashflow meaningfully benefiting from dropping expensive, lightly watched content with limited subscriber defections. <coughs> Why are we even talking about this now? Dish's retrans agreement with Sinclair expired last month, with the two companies operating under an extension that expires mid-September, with many believing a retrans deal is unlikely to occur without resolving RSN carriage. Given Oregon's repeated commentary about the financial benefits of dropping the RSNs, not just Sinclair's RSNs, but everyone else's RSNs as well, we cannot see how the RSNs come back onto DISH on the basic tier, especially knowing that Sinclair is out in the marketplace trying to raise capital for an RSN direct-to-consumer sports streaming service. We suspect DISH would be more than willing to carry the Bally Sports RSNs on an a la carte basis, meaning a tier, akin to their recent HBO agreement. While your knee-jerk reaction is this will trigger major MFN issues for the Bally RSNs, the answer is quite possibly. However, if Sinclair really wants to launch a D2C streaming service that competes with its MVPD offering, it will need a model for all of its distribution partners. Maybe Dish and Bally's will be just that template. Worth noting, it's possible that Dish strikes a retrans deal with Sinclair and does not bring back the RSNs at all. Dish NBCU is precedent for this where DISH reached a retrans programming deal with NBCU, but does not carry the NBCU RSNs. 
Finally, Dish Sinclair is not the only RSN deal of current interest. Verizon's website indicates its MSG Networks deal expires within the next 90 days. Verizon has been willing to experiment with tiering in the past, with mix and match and other offerings. It'll be interesting to see how aggressive they are in this negotiation. It's always difficult in the New York market where Verizon competes with Charter for broadband, not to mention now with the Knicks and Rangers finally on the upswing. Number 11. Who wants to be closer to the NFL? In June 2021, the NFL began the process to seek a strategic partner for the NFL Network, NFL Red Zone, and the NFL's digital media properties. At first glance, you might say, who wants to take a partial stake in a cable network, the NFL Net, and premium cable network add-on, Red Zone, that both live on linear TV-based MVPDs and VMVPDs in 2021? We believe the far larger opportunity is to rethink the entire strategy around NFL Network, Red Zone, and the NFL's digital properties. We believe the NFL knows the future is not linear TV, which is why it licensed Thursday Night Football rights to Amazon and why it built in an exit clause in 2030 from its recent TV licensing deals. While NFL ratings are holding up better on linear TV than any other sport or entertainment content, the underlying TV business is shrinking. Fewer and fewer consumers are subscribing to multi-channel television, reducing the NFL's reach. If the NFL wants to lean into the future and grow its reach, it needs to shift its digital assets to streaming. There should be an entire world built around pro football, original content, sports betting, merchandise, tickets, etc., not to mention incorporating college football. Now consider that every sports media company is thinking about how they build a robust direct-to-consumer streaming proposition and create value from the rise of sports betting, while every sports betting company is thinking about how they integrate sports media to lower customer acquisition cost CAC and differentiate themselves from their peers in a fiercely competitive market. NFL assets such as NFL Network and Red Zone both live, live within MVPD bundles today, but there's no reason they could not be exclusive streaming products in the future, adding interactivity including sports betting functionality. As mentioned above, it does not appear Disney's ready to spin off ESPN, but combining ESPN with the NFL's digital media properties would be a powerful combination, as it would for Fox or NBC. Similarly, combining DraftKings or FanDuel with NFL media properties could transform the sports betting landscape and help either reposition themselves in sports media. Amazon could also be a logical partner for NFL media, given their rapidly growing sports and television ambitions. We doubt the other major tech platforms, Google, Facebook, and Apple, will have any meaningful interest, as it feels too much of a one-off versus integrated into a larger strategy. Of COVID's ongoing impact. In the opening of our top 21 for 21, we said, we can see an end to the pandemic with vaccine distribution underway and began to speculate on the fate of COVID losers, such as movie theaters and live entertainment. Our thesis was that secular growers like live events would return to robust growth, while secular losers such as theaters would not. We were certainly wrong about the end of COVID. The Delta variant squashed the idea of a return to normal, especially as vaccination rates are meaningfully below government projections and many other developed nations. Several states are at or near all-time case highs. It feels like we are in a new normal of COVID permanence, where new variants will emerge and we will see spikes. We do not believe we were wrong about the fate of COVID losers, however. On the live event side, Delta variant or not, there has been robust supply and matching demand. Almost all planned tours have gone off this summer, with Live Nation reporting 8 million fans in August alone mostly in the U.S. and the U.K. In fact, climate change may have been had a bigger impact, 
with the cancellation of Bonnaroo and a number of amphitheater shows following Ida. Delta simply changed the protocols around show attendance. Last month, both Live Nation and AEG moved to require a vaccine or negative results to enter their buildings. The few tours that were postponed were moved by artists not willing to make such requirements in fears of alienating their fan base, which is disappointing in and of itself. There have been resulting cases, we know some. However, fans appear willing to take measured risk to have concerts. We aren't naive to believe indoor shows could give more fans pause, especially during spikes. However, we believe mask requirements for indoor live entertainment and sports will become commonplace as another mitigation tool. And the supply and demand appears robust for indoors. MSGE has spoken to the growth in fiscal June 22 over 20, with activity taking off later this month. Overall, Live Nation continues to speak to double-digit 2022 growth over 2019. The movie theater business is in the opposite situation. There continues to be relatively underwhelming demand for theatrical releases. Box office in July and August was down 50% plus versus 2019. And while Labor Day 2021 was up versus 2019, this is the first year our studio has released a major film on Labor Day, notably a Marvel film. There's a number of other non-COVID, though related factors at work, such as shifting release windows and SVOD-only releases. But the important takeaway is consumers are willing to gather and take risk for certain experiences. Consumers are certainly returning to the movies, just not in the same numbers as pre-pandemic. Number 13, impact of Hollywood losing access to China. As China movie theaters have grown dramatically over the past decade, its importance to Hollywood has risen meaningfully. Disney's Avengers Endgame in 2019 generated over 50% of its global box office from the U.S. and China, with China alone representing nearly 22% of global box office. Universal's recent F9 release generated nearly 29% of its global box office from China. While China box office exceeded the U.S. in 2020 due to the pandemic effect, China is expected to overtake the U.S. over the next few years. Yet, what is not being talked about enough is how fewer and fewer foreign films are gaining access to China. F9 was more of an exception than the rule. Worth reading this recent THR piece here. With local productions dominating the box office in China as regulators clamp down on access for foreign films, the larger question becomes, if Hollywood films are going to have less and less access to China, How does that change the thought process around windowing and streaming globally? Since there's still no access for foreign streaming services in China, no Netflix, no Disney+, no Prime Video, theatrical releases are critical to monetizing China. Furthermore, if you release on streaming before releasing theatrically in China, piracy decimates future box office potential. However, if a film is never gaining access to China, That could change the calculus for how studios think about the length of a theatrical window before streaming. With investors increasingly focused on direct-to-consumer streaming, it's hard to ignore the outperformance by HBO and HBO Max this year, with day-and-date movies a big driver. While studios are eager to get back to exclusive theatrical release windows to maximize near-term profits, if access to China continues to dry up, they may want to reconsider how they release films to accelerate D2C subgrowth.